thank you for, for special times in which we gather. Every time we gather as your people is to be an extraordinary time as we spend time worshiping you, delighting in you, praising you, and, and getting to be an encouragement to one another. I pray that this is what you're helping by your spirit for us to accomplish. We thank you that we come to you as a people of the book, and we desire to know you through your word. We desire to know the truth and to apply the truth. And so we thank you for the opportunity to continue to delve into uh, some of these topics that Jude brings to light. I pray that these would be beneficial opportunities for us to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ as we ask these things in his name. Amen. So if you would turn to Jude once again, and let me read for you Jude 11. Uh, we're going back, uh, as it were, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. But if you recall in Jude 11, Jude makes the statement. He begins with a curse upon apostates, and he says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have head rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, a few weeks back ago, we considered Jude 11 as part of our regular Sunday morning worship series through Jude. And in verse 11, we came across three Old Testament characters, you may recall, whom Jude uses to picture apostates and their coming doom. And as I mentioned that this in the sermon, there is too much in each one of these characters to cover in a message that we covered all of this at one fell swoop. And so I thought there was so much rich and insightful truth to flesh out that I've determined to bring them to you in three character studies in which we look at first today the way of Cain, then we'll look at the heir of Balaam, and we will finish up with the rebellion of Korah. Uh, I do this because, as most of you know, uh, I'm primarily a New Testament preacher. I spend most of my time there. It's where I'm most comfortable I love the Old Testament. I love the, 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 the accounts and the narratives. I find them a little more difficult to preach at times. That's not why I don't preach them but uh, uh, on Sunday morning, but we tend to do most of our Old Testament stuff uh, during our second hours, a little more casual settings. Uh, but these three particular characters, their, their stories, their accounts are so rich that I wanted to take some time to, to dig into them. Um, as I've mentioned in our discussions of the sermons, there is a, a sense, as we consider apostasy, that Adam was the first one to experience apostasy. Well, we wouldn't necessarily call him the first apostate because he, while he falls away from God, he doesn't remain fallen from God. So an apostate is one who falls away from God and remains uh, away from God. So we see the first apostasy in Adam, but we see in the person of Cain truly the first apostate, one who knew God, who knew the truth, rejected it, and never came back. And so I remind you that an apostate is one who at some point embraces the truth of God, but has since rejected it, seeking his own will in his own way apart from God. As we consider the way of Cain, I, I want to confess that some of what I say today may be conjecture. I want to be very careful with that. 
Some of the things that I will say today will be educated guesses based upon the text. Well, this, while this is not typically my style, it's important to get a picture of who Cain is and what he did. And so I'll do my best to stay true to what we know, and I'll try to tell you where I may be filling in the blanks because I don't want you to assume that I'm adding something to Scripture. What do we know? We know that Cain was born on the edge of the Garden of Eden. His parents, having sinned before his birth, had been expelled from the garden, but there is no reason to doubt that they didn't dwell near the garden. Uh, why would they leave? They could see uh, there was uh, the uh, two angels that were guarding the, the door. Why would God have the angels there if not to keep them out? Because they were somehow present. This would mean that Cain grew up seeing the glory of the fiery cherubim that stood guard at the gate of the Garden of Eden. As Cain grew up, he lived in a wondrous world, one that had not yet demonstrably displayed the full effects of the fall. The earth was still empowered to produce marvelous harvest with the right amount of patient farming. I have no doubt that Adam and Eve would have reminisced about their former days in the garden before their children, and they would have, uh, Cain would have heard those stories. While those memories would have been, on one hand, delightful to hear, to talk about what the trees were like and the, and the foods and, the, and, the, and all the delightful pictures there, there was also a sense of sobriety, a sense of, of heaviness as they recognized all that they had lost because they had sinned. Sin now reigned in death by sin. But up to this point, death had not really touched humanity. For all of Adam and Eve's experience, while they, we say they died spiritually, they had not yet died physically. None of their children had died physically. They only saw death by means of what? By animals. First one sacrificed by God's hand himself. God's revelation, his words to Adam and Eve, while brief from what we know, were very well known to Adam and to Eve. Salvation and deliverance and access to God was given. Eternal life was available, not now by eating of the forbidden fruit of the tree of life, but by simply trusting in God and what he would provide. However, we find in the life of Cain a man who sought his own ways. Jude bluntly describes him in his book here in verse 11. He describes him in this negative light as one who is the way of Cain. Cain truly becomes the first apostate. He is truly the father of all who, knowing the truth of God, reject it and choose not to believe it. Let me remind you as well what we know that Cain was the first man to be born of a woman. He's the very first one. We also know that he was the first man to refuse to come to God by faith. Cain holds some rather ignoble titles in, not only being the first apostate, but he comes to be known as the first murderer and the first person to become a nomadic fugitive on the face of the earth. Additionally, Cain becomes the first person who, in the words of the author of Hebrews, have tasted of the heavenly gift. He had been a partaker of the Holy Spirit. He had tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Cain 
was the first one was the first one who was once enlightened and yet rejected the light in favor of the darkness of lies. Cain becomes the representative head of all those who choose their own way rather than God's way and prefer human reason over divine revelation. We will consider the way of Cain this morning by three points. The first is the motivation for Cain's apostasy. The second will be the mark of Cain's apostasy. And finally, we'll look at the mood of Cain's apostasy. So I submit to you that Cain is the originator of the world's first, also, false religion. Where did false religion come from? It came from Cain. The New Testament describes the mindset of such a person as one whose mind is set on the flesh and therefore is hostile to God. He is therefore unable to subject himself to the law or the word of God. And that final statement, it says he's not even able to do so. Cain is a prototype of all who are energized and encouraged to rebel against the God, rebel by the God of this world. The way of Cain was founded on insurrection, by further, furthered by bloodshed, and is always focused on human works and human efforts. The way of Cain is the world's largest religion. It boasts billions and billions of adherents. It is the root of every false religion. So let's consider first then, our first point, the motivation of Cain's apostasy, the motivation of Cain's apostasy. If I were to give you a definition of what is meant by the phrase, the way of Cain, let me define it to you this way. The way of Cain is a man-centered assault on the revealed truth of the word of God. The way of Cain is a man-centered assault on the revealed truth of the word of God. If that be so, then we see the way of Cain having predominance in our culture today. We live in a culture where we have this man-centered assault on the truth of God. At the heart of every cult, at the heart of every false religion, are varying degrees of disregard concerning what God has said about the sinfulness of man, what God has said about how one man, uh, man approaches God. Remember that to be an apostate means that you have first come to recognize God's truth before rejecting it. And so I'd like us to consider what is it that Cain recognized? What is it that Cain knew? Well, I submit to you that Cain was neither an agnostic nor an atheist. He didn't doubt the existence of God. He didn't deny the existence of God. He knew there was a God. He did believe in God, but not salvifically. He would be as like the demons described in James 2.19, as even the demons believe, not unto salvation, but yet they tremble. Cain grew up under the shadow, as we said, of the Garden of Eden. He had seen the fierce angels and their swords of fire guarding the way to the Holy of Holies beyond the, the tree of life that was now closed off to him because of the sin of his parents. Some have suggested that in this, there is the picture of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting that would be later constructed by Moses, the garden itself being the perimeter of the, the tabernacle grounds and the tree of life in the center, picturing the holy of holies and, and the presence of God. 
The two angels guarding the place would, even as the wings of the two cherubim hovered over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, perhaps a parallel there, and just beyond the angel's sword was paradise. It is likely, and here is some of my conjecture, that Adam and Eve would go and pray and offer sacrifices near the closed gate of the garden. They would do so in the view of the tree of life. They were longing for the promised one who would come and restore paradise to them. It is interesting to me to think that when Jesus spoke to the thief on the cross, he made a very interesting statement, and one that we don't contemplate necessarily very, very deeply. When Jesus said to that thief, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me, where? In paradise. And the word paradise, actually, as used by Jesus, comes to us from the ancient Persians. Persian kings would surround their palaces with lush parks, planted marvelous trees and shrubberies, and stocked it all with all sorts of birds and animals. And Jesus deliberately chooses this word in, try, in the trying moments before his death, indicating that by his death, by the shedding of his own blood, his redeemed people would pass into a wondrous paradise, a garden that surrounds his father's house. Now, again, I'm speculating, but no doubt Adam and Eve must have taken Cain as a boy to the paradise, which was the Garden of Eden. No doubt they would have seen, uh, he would have seen them longingly gaze at what we, Milton, would call paradise lost. Surely they would speak among themselves concerning the promised seed of the woman through, the, through whom paradise lost would one day become paradise regained. Cain would watch as their parents offered the sacrifices as expressions of their faith in the blessed hope that at death they would surely enter the paradise of heaven. Having experienced all of this, Cain did recognize a need for God. He had a love, he had the love of his parents. He was given the companionship of a brother named Abel. He was even given responsibilities that of as a farmer. Although they were not in the garden, they, the world was still an incredibly productive and beautiful place. Cain could plow and plant and make things grow. He could travel and explore and take in nature as created by God. And yet with all of these things before him, all of this available to him, there was still yet a God-shaped vacuum in his heart. The world could not satisfy the human heart. Humanity has been created to fellowship with God. Humanity has been created to be and indwelt by God's spirit, empowered by God's spirit, motivated by God's spirit, and yet sin had changed all of that. When sin entered into the heart of man, the Holy Spirit moved out. The Shekinah glory that could be seen was outside and not inside. Cain had been born then as a natural man. He possessed all sorts of intellect, emotions. He had his own will, and yet he was devoid of the spirit of God. The natural man cannot do anything to please God. In short, Cain needed God even as every human being needs God. This is what he recognized. So what did he reject? What did he reject? 
the truth of who God is and his revelation of what he desires was constantly before Cain, even as it was, is constantly available to us today, to all who live. The word of God summarizes for us two different attitudes of approaching God as exhibited in the lives of both Cain and his brother Abel. And we read of this in Hebrews 11.4. Notice what the author of Hebrews writes. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. And where did this faith that Abel was able to offer a better sacrifice than Cain come from? Where does all faith come from, beloved? Well, we read in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. Abel had heard the revelation, the truth of God, and he believed and he trusted in it. Cain, as we'll come to see, rejected it. There can be little doubt that Cain had been given this revelation of what God desired and required, that which would constitute faith. And while we possess far more, well, we don't know this for sure, we would say we possess certainly far more biblical revelation than Cain did, I submit to you that Cain had received everything necessary for him to have faith in God. We can be certain that Eve would have communicated to him the promised seed that would come of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. Eve, being so certain that God would send the Son into the world through her, the Son that would be the one who would bring about the redemption of Adam's fallen race, that when Cain was born, she assumed Cain was the one. And we knew this, know this even by what the name of Cain means. The name Cain means the gotten one, the acquired one. In Genesis 4.1, she says, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And it, it would be her initial thought that here is the one that's going to take care of what, what she and Adam had done back in the garden. But she would quickly discover that Cain was not the promised seed. Cain had been born in sin. And rather than being the savior that she longed for, it became evident that Cain himself would need a savior. It would seem that by the time Eve conceives and delivers her second child that she actually recognizes that she may be waiting a long time for the promised seed to come. How do we know that? Because she names her second child Abel. You ever stop to think what the word Abel means? Abel means vanity or emptiness. How's that for a name, right? Not a name that really encourages you, does it? <laughs> But while Eve may have been discouraged at not seeing this promised seed immediately and feeling like everything's empty and vain, she would convey to her sons that God's promise was yet sure and it would come to pass. And we can be sure that Cain had learned from his parents the marvelous account of creation as well as the sad tragedy of their fall into sin. He would have been instructed in the truth of God, providing for and covering Adam and Eve by the slaying of an animal. While we are not told this directly, there is no doubt that Adam was highly intelligent and that he walked intimately with God and therefore was aware of the gospel in ways that we ourselves may not even be aware. 
There is no reason to suspect that Adam was not aware that a sacrifice of animals was a picture of a greater coming sacrifice for sin. There's no reason to doubt that Adam, that in Adam we find him that he failed to, that he didn't fail to communicate such truths to his sons. And yet, Cain rejected Adam's theology. The rejection would become the root of his apostasy. Again, remember that an apostate is one who once knew the truth of God, but has since rejected it to embrace a lie. So what motivated Cain was his own flesh. This brings us to our second point, the marks of Cain's apostasy. Having exchanged the truth of God for a lie, Cain must develop his own theology. He must develop his own ideas of who God is and how God should be approached. Beloved, this is the root of all false religion. It is a man-conceived, man-made approach to God. For, let's note at least four lies that can be sub substituted for the truth that Cain, that Cain uh, committed. And the first is this, that Cain exchanged God's revelation for human reason. God exchanges God's revelation for human reason. Now, most of us can understand that, right? We know people that might know something of God's truth, but they, they substitute their own human reason. Now, human reason is remarkable. Uh, we, we would be uh, remiss to say that uh, the human mind has not accomplished great things. We can reason and use tools we can develop things such as mathematics and physics and engineering and medical sciences to create and build and aid in the propagation and well-being of humanity in ways that we cannot. It's just truly astonishing. No other creature of God's creation, not one other creature of God's creation, is capable of doing anything even close to the degree that has been granted humanity. And yet, with all the splendorous things that humanity has been able to create and all that they've been able to do because of sin, humanity is also capable of the most horrific of gaffes and errors. And incredibly, the area in which humanity most greatly demonstrates his error is in the realm of religion. History is filled with accounts of superstitions and nonsense that people are so readily uh, so readily uh, desirous to embrace, so eagerly apt to believe. Since the fall of man, billions of people have substituted their own thinking for the teaching of God's word. Beloved, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it is impossible for humanity uh, to rightly and savingly know God by means of human reason. You cannot be saved by human reason. We may all well be amazed when we read a book or see a movie depicting the famous uh, uh, detective, Sherlock Holmes. You've probably seen something or read a book, right? Sherlock Holmes was able to do what? He was able to deduce. He was able to reason much about a crime and the perpetrator of the crime with the power of his mind. But while Sherlock Holmes could tell you something about the victim, while he could tell you something about the crime, he could never tell you that he intimately knew the, the, the person, the, per, uh, the perpetrator or the victim. Before anyone can truly know a person, the person must reveal truths 
about him or herself. I mean, if you're married, you know this to be true. You might have seen your spouse and think, wow, that's a, that's a great person. I, I really want to, to be married to them. You probably didn't do it that way. You might say, what? I really want to, to know that person. You get to know the person. You can see they might be wearing purple. And so you say, I wonder if she likes purple. You know, but until you talk to her and she reveals to you those things, you can't know those intimate de details. There must be something revealed. We must know what the likes and the dislikes are. What are the fears and, and, the, and the joys? The point is that the best that reason can do is tell you about a person, but to truly know a person requires revelation. And this is most certainly true, is it not, about God? It is obvious, and Scripture affirms, that humanity can know much about God by looking at the world around. Many of you are familiar with the argument of intelligent design, meaning that as we look at this world around us, it is clear that there's order and design in the universe, that even from the universe down to a, a, a human cell, it points to a designer. It points to an intelligence that put it all together. Humanity can reason that out. Humanity can, uh, can, can look at those things and say, because there's a design, there must be a designer. But until God reveals specifically who he is, until he tells us what he likes and what he dislikes, until uh, we see what he desires and requires, you can never intimately know God. We need his revelation. And Cain had intentionally cast off rejected what God had revealed to Cain about himself, and he substituted it for what? His own reason. We are so incredibly blessed to have the completed revelation of God before us. All that is necessary for life and faith contained in 66 books and two testaments. We call it the written revelation of God. In the Bible, beloved, God reveals to us everything necessary for life and godliness. There's not one thing that's missing here. We need to believe that. We need to tell other people that. People are searching for meaning, searching for hope, searching for, for whatever it is in life, and it's all found in the Bible. God has given to us everything. An apostate, though, will seek to deconstruct this revelation breaking it up into meaningless fragments, again, substituting his own religious philosophy. Ultimately, what it is, it's creating a God in your own image, a God that you can manage. I tell you this, if you can put your God in a box, it's not the God of the Bible. Well, Cain not only exchanged God's revelation for human reason, he exchanged the necessity of blood for beauty. I mean, if you had to choose whether to give your wife some bloody piece of meat or some beautiful flowers, what would you think she'd prefer? Meat, okay. <laughs> You're a sick group. Flowers. Scripture is clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. In Exodus 12, 13, the Lord said to Israel, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
In 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, we read, Knowing that you were not redeemed from, with perishable things like silver or gold inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, blood as of a lamb unblemished, or as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. In Hebrews 10:19 we read therefore brethren since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ one of the chief complaints against Christianity is its seeming violence and the necessity of something as gross and horrific as the shedding of blood as being necessary of being made right with God such a point of view fails to see the exceeding sinfulness of sin and the utter holiness of God. But this becomes the mindset of Cain. He exchanges the necessity of blood for beauty. How do we know this? Well, if you were to look in Genesis 4, you would find his sacrifice. He brings to God a sacrifice in Genesis 4, one that I have no doubt is one of great beauty. It was loaded with a variety of colorful fruits and vegetables, filled with fragrant spices and herbs. It must have been the most ornate and wonderful and beautiful cornucopia that you've ever seen. He spent his time piecing it together and bringing it before God. Any one of us would love to see and possess and partake of such a fruit basket as that. No doubt Cain believed that he was offer, offering up that which was attractive. It was beautiful. He had conceived himself that this, his own arrangement would bring what? The approval of God. Look what my hands have done. It's like the little kid that, that puts together with the putty something for his parent, you know, parents and he brings it to the parents and you don't know what it is. Well, it's a horse. Okay. And yet... Is, this is what I've done. It would seem that Cain had disregard for what Abel had brought. To him, what, what Abel brought was nothing but pure gore and blood and violence. Cain was certainly aware that the lamb had been offered up uh, by Abel had to have had its throat slit that its gut was cut open and all the innards were taken out and, and moved about. And, and Abel's altar would have been stained with the blood and then blackened by fire. And perhaps, perhaps Cain might have heard Abel offer up a prayer along the lines, Oh my God, what a price that must be paid to cover my sin. The modern-day apostate looks with disdain upon the message of salvation by the blood of Christ. They reject justification by faith and the work of Christ on the cross, and they substitute what they believe are to be the beautiful works of their own hands by which God must then be pleased. This is a works-based religion and not what the word of God teaches. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This naturally brings us to the third mark of Cain's apostasy. He exchanged trusting God for human trying. Beloved, God has always been, uh, God's salvation has always been based on faith. 
faith in the work of God. Again, in Hebrews 11.4 we read, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Cain's apostasy was followed uh, 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 was that he followed a religious practice that was diametrically opposed to what we read here in, in Hebrews 11.4. The primary motivation behind all cults and false religions is the concept of good works meriting the favor of God. I would have you consider that Cain was put, uh, that Cain had put an admirable effort into his sacrifice to God. Cain plowed the dirt. Cain had to wipe the sweat off his own brow. Cain cultivated those plants. He weeded that garden. His skin would have been darkened under the heat of the sun, and he would do battle with those thorns and those weeds that would sprout up amongst his plants. Cain went out to reap his harvest, and at the end of the day, no doubt, he chose the absolute best arranged it to be the most delightful in appearance, and he set it on the altar, and then he stood back and he waited for God's approval. All man-made religions are based upon a scripture-denying principle that salvation can be and must be earned in some fashion. Rather than trusting God in what God had said, what God would, would say, this brings peace between you and me, Cain was trying to earn his own peace on his own terms through his own effort. While it took effort for Abel to slay the lamb and offer it up to God, Abel's heart was focused on what God had done to cover his parents' sin in the garden the cost of life that was necessary to even be temporarily made right with God. Meanwhile, Cain's offering was about, look what my hands have done. Look at the efforts that I have made to be right with you, God. As many of you have heard, there are only two kinds of religion in this world, attainment or atonement. The religion of attainment, the working of sal for salvation, results always in death and damnation. The religion of atonement, of seeing and trusting what God has done to save you, always leads to salvation and bliss. Well, that brings us to the fourth exchange, that Cain exchanged divine facts for human feelings. He exchanged divine facts for human feelings. In Cain's offering, he was dependent upon how he felt, right? You like that word? How do you feel? He was dependent upon how he felt rather than what were the facts. He brought his sacrifice. He no doubt felt, felt justified by what he had done. In his own eyes, he had, he had crafted, he had, had put together what he believed was beautiful and acceptable. He had presented it as the first fruits of his labor. He now felt that God must accept him. What more could he do than what he had offered? He had done his best. And he felt good about it. But as Genesis 4 reveals, within his heart there lay a seed, a seed of murder. And man-made religion can only deal with what we do. It has no power to deal with what we are. Cain was concerned about the outward appearance rather than dealing with the sin that was lurking in his heart. And all of this, beloved, serves to remind us that we are not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. This is what we are. 
that is what must be dealt with. And remember, while Cain is orchestrating this facade of religiosity, he's doing so in rebellion to what God had revealed as an acceptable sacrifice, not given by human motivation and reasoning, but rather by faith in what God had already shown him. Just the facts, Cain. Cain had deliberately rejected God's way of being made right with God, and he substituted what he reasoned as being right and best, and he felt that that was okay. This would be his doom. And all this brings us to our final point, the mood of Cain's, mood of Cain's apostasy. The mood of Cain's apostasy. Even before the results of Cain's man-centered religion would be revealed, God had no regard for his offering. In Genesis 4, and you can turn there if you'd like, I'm going to look at a few verses here, but they'll be up on the screen. But in Genesis 4, 4 and 5, we read this. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. Now the question becomes, how did God display that he had regard for Abel's sacrifice and not for Cain's? Well, most believe that Abel's sacrifice was consumed by fire. That Cain offering sat there looking pretty, but was not consumed by fire. This would be a foreshadowing of sorts of the altars of the, the Baal priest and compared with the altar of Elijah. Uh, how, was God's, uh, how was Elijah proven correct? Because fire came down and consumed the water and the sacrifice itself in 1 Kings 18. But let me point out then to you three moods that are true of Cain in his apostasy, three things that we might make sure are not being found within us. And the first one is this, his resentment, his resentment. In Genesis 4, 5, we read that Cain, uh, upon learning that his sacrifice was not, uh, did not have God's regard, says his countenance fell. This is a reflection of his mood. He was, what does it mean to have your countenance fall? He was offended. He was offended that God did not consume his sacrifice. That God had not appreciated all that he had done. Is that not the typical response of religious people when you tell them that their works and their efforts do not earn them the respect of God? Well, he was not only resentful, we see his rage. Cain's resentment is rage. We also read in Genesis 4, 5, so Cain became angry. The idea here is of becoming ferociously angry. And again, in Hebrews eleven four, it says that Abel had obtained the testimony that he was righteous. He obtained the testimony that he was righteous. This does not mean that it was because of what Abel did he was uh, righteous. He was made righteous by faith, it says, and God gave him and put upon him this testimony that he was righteous. Cain was not regarded as righteous. And when you tell somebody that they're a sinner, you tell an unbeliever they're a sinner, you tell an unbeliever that they may be going that they're going to hell if they continue in the path that they live in what is their typical response anger how dare you tell me that 
How dare you mock my life because I have all these other things that, that are right and, and you would say to me that what I'm doing is not good enough for God? Yes, because nothing any of us will ever do will be good enough for God. There's only one who has pleased God, and that's his son, Jesus Christ. Cain was not regarded as righteous. It fueled his rage. He had thought himself and his sacrifice actually to have been better than Abel. Of course, Cain cultivated this anger. He allowed the seed of anger to, to dwell within his heart. And as Jesus points out in the Sermon on the Mount, what happens when you let anger cultivate in the heart? It turns to murder. And this would be Cain's downfall. We read in Genesis 4, 6 and 7, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will, you not, uh, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desires for you, but you must master it. What is God ultimately doing? There's so much there that we could consider, but let me just make it this simple. God calls Cain to deal with his sin. Deal, Cain, with the sin that is in your heart. Let's get that resolved right now, because if you don't take care of this now, this will bring your downfall. And so this leads to yet the next mood of Cain, his rebellion. Cain allows his now rage to seethe, and it eventually results in his doing what? He kills his brother Abel, and he does so out of sheer malice. He hates what Abel stands for. He hates that by faith, Abel, uh, Abel's sacrifice was deemed respectable. But we find in the text that Cain adds to the proverbial, ins uh, proverbial insult to injury by not just killing Abel, he also lies to God. So he, well, you know, what's worse, murder or lying? We'd all say lying, uh, uh, I mean murder, but Cain does both. He kills his brother, and in Genesis 4, verses 8 and 9, we read this. Cain told his brother Abel, and it came about that when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother, uh, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. That's a lie. And then he adds that infamous statement, am I my brother's keeper? There is no repentance it strikes me that there's no remorse. Cain has now fully rejected the truth of God. He does not respond to the grace of God. That God's actually speaking to him in this text should be astounding. What should have God, I mean, if we were God, what would we do? Just strike him down. Right? Life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. He's actually having a conversation where is Abel, your brother? An act of grace. And Cain, now fully apostate, says, I do not know. This is the way of Cain. In Genesis 4, 10 and 11, we read, he said, God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed 
from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Through all of this, he, God says, you're cursed. All Cain had to do in the moment was repent. All he had to do is fall on his face and say, Lord, have mercy on me. But there's no indication of repentance. In fact, he rather expresses a most bitter reaction to God's gracious sentence. While he should have died, he's allowed to live. And rather than saying, wow, I'm still alive, he responds poorly. God places a mark on him to protect him from his own folly and from any who would find him. Because, you know, he responds like, well, now if I go out, somebody's going to see me and they're going to kill me. God says, I'll graciously take care of that. He never says thank you. Because although they know God, they neither worship him as God nor give thanks. Acknowledge him as God or give thanks. Cain will live out his days as a marked man. And yet he expresses no concern. He believed he would get along fine apart from God. His attitude was essentially this. Who needs God anyway? You know some of those people? This is the way of Cain, a downward spiral that begins with a putting off, a disregard of who God is and what God has said. The way of Cain always leads to doom and destruction. In contrast, as we've noted, the way of Abel is one of faith by which he obtained. Again, he received this testimony of God, that God saying, I made him righteous. Isn't that the testimony of all of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ? We haven't made ourselves righteous. We have the testimony that we are righteous because of our faith in Jesus Christ. This means that because of his faith in what God had said and his obedience to that revelation, Abel was accounted, Abel was reckoned as righteous by God. We can only, beloved, be made righteous. We cannot make ourselves righteous. And we can only do that by faith in God's provision, in what God has done. I pray that rather than the way of Cain, we might go the way of Abel and receive by faith the testimony that we are made right with God because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The way of Cain is the way of apostasy. The way of apostasy is rejecting the truth that you know God has given in favor of propping up your own idea, your own uh, philosophy, your own religion. May we not be found in the way of Cain. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that speaks to us of what faith looks like, that speaks to us of what unbelief looks like. We know that we find in the character of Cain one who had rejected you, one who had disbelieved you, one who had not desired the way of the Lord. I pray, Father God, that there not be found in any one of us a sinful, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. We thank you that you have given us the contrast, that we do not need to walk in the way of Cain, but we can walk in the way of Abel. And we thank you for the author of Hebrews who tells us that the way of Abel is simply by faith by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, may we be found as those who are in Christ, not possessing a righteousness of our own derived from the law or the work of our hands, 
but that which is found in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.